today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. Premier Doug Ford has launched a new social media channel to promote his government's agenda. Uh, it's on Twitter. It's on uh, the Doug Ford government uh, Facebook page. It's called Ontario News Now. It was created actually back on July the 12th. But uh, the first content was published on Monday night. It's a minute-long video. We have the audio of it. We'll play it for you in a second. But it, it basically kind of sums up Premier Ford's first month in office. It includes a montage of all, all the things that he has uh, accomplished in month number one. The Voice is a former broadcaster and a Ford campaign staffer. Her name is Lindsay Vanstone. She's the on-air presenter of the video. So maybe let's play you this one-minute video of Ontario News Now. Since his inauguration on June 29th, Premier Ford has been off to the races, literally. The Premier met with Prime Minister Trudeau, Mayor Tory, laid out his agenda during the throne speech, met with Canada's premiers in New Brunswick, shook hands with Ontario's police college grads. And the Premier travelled to Perry Sound to thank those battling forest fires across the province. Premier Ford attended dozens of events in 30 days. And he managed to keep a few campaign promises too. We said we're going to get rid of cap and trade and the carbon tax. Reduce gas prices by 10 cents. We did it. We said we were going to get rid of the CEO on the board of Hydro. We did it. We said we were going to get the kids back in school at York University. We did it. And we're going to continue getting what we said we were going to do done. From Queen's Park, I'm Lindsay Vanstone. All right, so there is submission number one on Ontario News Now. Now, we should mention that the Ford government has confirmed to Global News that production of the content is being paid for with taxpayer dollars. Now, they won't say how much this is costing, but they at least confirmed that. The uh, director of communications for the PC Caucus Services said, quote, we're using technologies available to us to communicate with the people. Platforms such as Facebook provide us with the opportunity to communicate directly with people from all corners of Ontario. All right, let's have this discussion here. Christopher Waddell is a professor of the School of Journalism and Communication at Carleton University, an expert in political journalism, and joins us now. Professor Waddell, thanks for joining us today. Thanks very much, Rick. I want to utter the word propaganda, so so maybe maybe we'll start there. Is this the definition of that? Well, I'm not sure that it's really the definition of that. On, on, on some level, we have lots of people wringing their hands about fake news, uh, however you define that, and this seems to be a pretty good example of fake news. Uh, it's surprising that governments would decide to do it, but it, but it's not something new. Uh, governments have been doing this for a while. The Harper government in Ottawa used to produce something they called 24-7, which in many ways was similar to, to, to the section you just played, a, a series of uh, descriptions of what Mr. Harper was doing, the people he was meeting, pictures of him, all those sorts of things. Um, you know, of course, it also contains some statements that are factually incorrect. Gas prices haven't been low, fallen by 10 cents, despite what Mr. Ford may say. They may at some point in the future, but it hasn't happened. Uh, and it's basically a way for, uh, it's, it's a way for, um, governments to do exactly as your 
quote described, the media is no longer the gatekeeper it used to be in that the Internet and, and other communications tools allow people, whether it's governments, corporations, sports teams, whoever it might want to be, to do, communicate directly with the public. And that's what they're doing on some level. But the, what they've chosen to do is try to mimic the, uh, the, the sort of uh, presentation style that you would see in a newscast. And on some levels, that kind of suggests that they think the public is stupid and won't recognize the difference. But I think the public is actually a lot smarter than that. <laughs> That's the first thing I've thought of. Uh, you know, how, how dumb do they think we are? Um, and, and personally, I don't have a, an issue with what they're saying, you know, apart from the gas prices, which is just an outright lie. Uh, because they have not gone down by by ten cents. If anything, they've gone up a few cents. Well, they go up and down every day. And exactly. Tell anyway. <laughs> that that's very true. But the thing, uh, I didn't have a problem with what they said. Uh, again, apart from the gas prices, but it was how they delivered the message that got to me. Yeah. It, well, it's not delivered in a particularly sophisticated fashion. And if you actually see the video of it, what most of it, what most of it is consists of is a series of still photographs. Yep. Um, over uh, running behind the uh, the 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 um, announcer's comments, and then at the end we have a couple of clips with Mr. Ford. Of course, what's different in those clips that would be from what you would hear in a news conference is he's not being challenged, uh, and no one is saying is asking him to be accountable. No one is actually um, comparing what he's saying at any given point in time with what he may have said previously, and and basically it becomes a promotional opportunity. Whether it's propaganda or not depends on, on how far you want to go, I guess. So what would be, what line would they have to cross for it to become propaganda? Well, I think a couple of things you'd have to, um, I think, a couple of things I think you would want to look and see how much of it is factually accurate and how much of it isn't factually accurate. Um, is it being used to uh, to discuss and describe what the government is doing? Is it being used to criticize a ridicule or undermine the opposition? Is it being used in the way that uh, that President Trump in the United States uses some of his speeches to attack uh, minority groups, to attack different people, uh, to launch personal assaults and personal attacks? We haven't seen any of that at the moment. So, so when it moves to some of those areas, I think it becomes a lot more uh, um, more than just public relations, and and much more into what you could call almost a form of propaganda directed both at um, persuading the public that black is white or white is black, and also at using government money to, to attack and undermine um, all policies, either from opposition parties or policies from, from uh, interest groups, other groups that may be different than the government's policies. Our guest is uh, Professor Christopher Waddell. He's at the School of Journalism and Communication at Carleton University, also an expert in political journalism. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. Rick in for Scott this week. Is this uh, an effort, you think, by the PC government, by the powers that be, the the backroom kind of uh, puppeteers, if you will, to keep Ford on a leash or, or keep him out of the media spotlight as much as possible? Well, I think, again, if it's borrowed from the Harper government and a lot of the people who are involved in the Ford campaign and people who are working for, for, for people in the Ford government had experience in Ottawa. The things that happened in Ottawa was, was a deliberate attempt to um, bypass the media, uh, an attempt to prevent the media from asking questions, in some cases an, uh, an effort, a deliberate effort to, 
to uh, keep information from the media, uh, all those things. And there was basically a, a 10-year war between the, communi- between the people who controlled Mr. Harper's communications and, and the Parliamentary Press Gallery. Um, Parliamentary Press Gallery is bigger than the Press Gallery at Queen's Park, thanks to all the cutbacks that have taken place among news organizations, although the reporters that are still there are just as uh, active and, and aggressive as they've always been. But I suspect what we're seeing is the early phases of a similar sort of war in which um, which starts largely from the premise that, uh, that, that somehow all news organizations are biased against government, the government, this particular government, and that they can't be relied on to actually um, um, report things accurately or fairly. It's part, it's part of a, 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 cons- a, a conservative party, and not just this conservative party, but conservative parties in most places that actually um, base a lot of their support or attempts to support on on arguments about how they can't get a fair shake, how they're being, uh, how they're being, uh, in one way or another, everyone's out to get them, and it's a bit of a campaign on um, a bit of a paranoia campaign, and that you see a little bit of that in a lot of what they do. It, it appears that they just don't want to be challenged. Well, that's part of it. They don't want to be challenged, and, and particularly don't, they don't want to be challenged when, in fact, things they say are factually inaccurate. Right. And, uh, and, but, you know, they, they, the, other, the other difficulty they face, I think, in the short term at least, is in their first month or so in government, they've done a lot of things in terms of taking apart what the previous government had done, yet have no idea how to replace it or what they're going to do. And so they're left sort of, if someone asks, well, what are you going to do with with um, on climate change? What do you and uh, replacing a carbon tax? What are you going to do on on uh, on a variety of other issues at the moment uh, on the sexual educa- sex education in schools on other things? They really quickly revert to saying things that don't make any sense because they don't know what they're going to do. So that's a probably a reason why they don't want to stand up for sustained questioning, which ultimately becomes if you're if you're stopping doing something, what are you going to replace it with? And we don't know. Well, yeah, the other excuses are, you know, we're, we're working on it. We have a 100-day timeline for a new social right. assistance program. Right. Uh, you know, we're, we're consulting with the public on a new sex ed curriculum. That'll be in place soon. I guess that's what we get for electing a government that didn't have an election platform before the vote. That could be in part. And in some cases, they're not being pressed on something. For instance, the I mean, it's fine to run around and talk about we're consulting with people, but frankly, consultations don't matter much. The question is what you do with the consultations. I think I think most governments will discover that on any given issue, you can, if you consult people, you'll get everyone from one extreme to the other extreme. But the real question becomes how do you how do you assess all the different points of view you have, and who and and how do you then use that to determine what your policy is going to be? And we don't know that in any case at the moment. Is this Ontario News now basically an effort to control the message? Uh, you know, I don't know. I'm, it's hard to say. I'm sure, they're maybe trying to do that on some level, but I'm not sure it's actually going to be seen by enough people to make much of a difference. And I'd be cautious about anything you see on social media about the number of people who actually quote-unquote uh, views that it might have. Don't forget that you can buy these. You can there. There are lots of different ways you can inflate those, as we've seen through through um, fake accounts, through bots, through a bunch of other things. So if I was doing this and I was the Conservatives, the first thing I'd do would go out and ensure that I was creating a lot of fake views and, and fake visibility to try to make it look like it was more 
perhaps more uh, more visible and more seen than than it may well be. So, you know, Mr. Harper tried his twenty four seven video newscast, the video summaries of his of his time in office from about twenty eleven or so. That didn't appear to have help them at all in the 2015 election campaign. So I'm not sure this is going to do much different. All of this came, uh, coincidentally enough, on Tuesday during a media availability with uh, Lisa McLeod, uh, where uh, towards the end of the, at least after a few reporters' questions, uh, the PC staff began clapping altogether to drown out reporters after only a few questions. Uh, and, and it kind of goes hand in hand with, you know, the, the suggestion that they're trying to control the message or at least limit, uh, you know, the, the, the media's uh, interjections. Certainly limit the number of questions. I think the idea of, bringing, of, of turning news conferences into uh, theater or, or, uh, or comedy or whatever you want to make it is, um, is ultimately not, very, uh, not a very good thing to do. Um, it also kind of is an attempt to intimidate the media, essentially, by applauding, by stopping them from asking questions, by yelling at them. Um, we've seen that go to more extremes in the United States in the last little while, including in the last week or so. There's been a lot of talk about it there. But it's the same sort of tactic, that turning, uh, turning uh, news conferences where journalists are attempting to uh, understand issues, attempting to, to hold people accountable, uh, attempting to get additional information that allows them to figure out how to report an issue or a story, or to get the various perspectives on it, turning that all into a partisan event. I mean, I think that's Bush League, and it ultimately will work against their interests. And again, I don't think the public is actually... It's another example to me that the public is not stupid enough to believe that. Do you think the Ford campaign is uh, going... Or the Ford government, I guess, at this time, uh, at this point, is going to continue with this network for their the full duration? I mean, if, if it works and they're seeing... However, they're going to manage or, or calculate uh, these results. Do you think they'll keep up with it? Hard to say. I think the more difficult issue for them may be, and we'll see how that develops, is that that under the Liberal government, there was an attempt made to try to ensure that 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 advertising and that things being done by government was not for partisan advantage, what, but was really informational advertising. How to renew your health card when your driver's license expires. How to get your your disability payments. Those sorts of things, and and the Auditor General and other people in the province were were tried to keep a very close eye on that because governments tended to use government advertising and government spending as you got closer to an election to promote the party in power. Um, how this attempt to do a version of that is received, what people think of it, and 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 whether it's determined to be a violation of of any advertising rules that have been in place um, is something that's going to probably unfold over the next little while. Well, we'll be watching with a keen eye, and uh, we appreciate the time from Christopher Waddell. Thank you very much. Thanks very much, Rick. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 right, Bear with me, CHML. because this story needs some explanation just to paint the picture. An Ontario court has ruled, in what appears at this case to be a precedent-setting case, that a frozen embryo sold to a now-divorced couple belongs to the ex-wife and can be implanted in her. Now, the decision regarding the ownership of this embryo um, turned on clauses in contracts the couple signed when they embarked on their fertility process. And, uh, And this resulted in a son. So the couple, which has not been identified in this case, just with initials. We have a DH and an SH. They got married in in 2009. Uh, They paid nearly $12,000 to a facility in the U.S. 
to buy donated eggs and sperm. So this is this is not their eggs and sperm. This is eggs and sperm that have been donated to this facility from which four embryos resulted. Two of the embryos proved viable and were sent to a, a fertility clinic in Mississauga, where one was successfully implanted in the woman. And uh, there came the son thereafter. The other embryo remained frozen and in storage. So fast forward uh, to their divorce. They're now no longer together. Now they're, they've gone to court to fight over this frozen embryo. So the woman, who's now 48, was arguing that uh, the couple signed um, a, a contract, for lack of a better term, that included a stipulation that the clinic would respect the patient's wishes in the event of divorce and defined her as the patient. Now, she also said she wasn't going to seek child support from her ex and pointed out that the embryo was significant because it would potentially lead to you know, the only connection to a biological family her son would have. Now, her ex-husband said, wait, hold the fort here. He wanted the embryo, arguing that he paid for uh, the embryos and uh, he was the, the, the rightful owner. He also argued that she was financially unable to support their son uh, let alone another child. So there's basically the nuts and bolts of how this story went down. So let's bring in our, our I know it's convoluted, let's bring in our next guest here, Francois Bayless, a Canada Research Chair in Bioethics and Philosophy and professor at Dalhousie University, and she joins us now. Francois, how are you today? I'm fine, thanks. Uh, to say the story is wild and complex might be an understatement. We, we haven't really seen this before. That's correct. What do you make of it? Well, I think this is a complicated case in that uh, a number of things are going on here that are really quite troubling. So one of the things that's very troubling is, as you've described, the couple was engaged in purchasing embryos, which is actually an illegal activity in Canada. So one of the things that's important is that they went to do this outside of the country. So they actually did this activity elsewhere. And Canada does not have extraterritorial application of its current prohibition. So we can't say or do anything about the fact that you've done something that would be illegal in Canada, but is not illegal in the country that you did it in. But the complication comes in is that you've then, you know, signed a contract about something that's going to happen in Canada, where part of that contract describes an illegal activity. And so I think that's one of the things that's very unusual here. And the judge makes a comment about this and saying, you know, I note that Canadian law prohibits buying and selling embryos. But then he goes on to say that nobody raised this as a legal conflict inherent in the contracts. So you're already recognizing there's a problem with the contract. And yet, as the judge, you go on and decide that the contract is, in fact, enforceable. And the problem with that is that you're then treating human embryos as property. And I think that, for me, is deeply problematic. Uh, we certainly don't or shouldn't think about our children as property. And when you're looking at the embryo to treat it as matrimonial property that we're then going to divide up between spouses seems to me deeply problematic. And that's basically what it boiled down to. The, the judge treated this embryo as property, even going as far to say as 
uh, you know, they planned to jointly own the embryos regardless of who paid for them. Uh, but at the end of the day, ruled that, you know, the, this, this piece of property belonged to the ex-wife. Well, here's where I also think that what's troubling about this case is I believe that the judge actually made a mistake. Okay. So there's an error here. How so? So first of all, it's not, you know, unfounded that other people and other judges have decided that sperm or eggs would be treated as matrimonial property. It's a little bit different, I think, with respect to embryos. But beyond that, in the case, the judge wrote, and I'm quoting now, There is no law on point that has considered how to dispose of embryos when neither party has a biological connection to the embryos. So this is a statement in the decision, and in fact, that's false. So in Canada, we have a piece of legislation called the Assisted Human Reproduction Act. That's the act that in fact says it's illegal to buy embryos. But beyond that, that act has a number of regulations And the regulations have to do with the issue of disposal or disposition of embryos. And the law says very clearly that if there are embryos in a context where they were created, and it specifically even anticipates this situation, it says the embryos were created regardless of the source of the human reproductive material, that the consent of each spouse or common law partner must be sorry compatible. So the thing that's very bizarre to me in this case, and if I were advising the male person who brought forward the suit, I would be saying, I think there's an error in law here, and here is the act, and this judge has in fact not uh, respected Canadian law, because Canadian law says that the consent of each spouse must be compatible. They're not in agreement, and therefore, you can't actually make the donation. Interesting. Francois Bayless is our guest, Canada Research Chair on our In Bioethics and Philosophy, professor at Dalhousie University here on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. Rick, in for Scott. What precedent, uh, precedent does this establish, or, or does it set a precedent? Well, I actually hope it doesn't set a precedent, um, partly because, as I said, I think it's very troubling to think that we're going down a path where we would treat embryos as matrimonial property. I think that's deeply disturbing, and I would hope that, therefore, this judgment gets overturned, and the way in which it might get overturned is to actually point out that there appears to be an error in law, that, in fact, there is a piece of legislation that requires that the consent of both partners be compatible and that that standard has not been met. So in this case, I mean, if you're you're the presiding judge, would you just say, you know, this embryo is going to stay in a neutral site, for lack of a better term? Well, that's another very interesting phenomenon. So I and a number of other people in Canada have been uh, commenting on the fact that in Canada, compared with other countries, we have no limit on the time for which an embryo can be held in storage. And so in theory, it could be held in storage in perpetuity. And for that reason, a number of us have been arguing that in Canada, like other jurisdictions, that there should perhaps be a time limit on the number of years in which you could hold that kind of reproductive material in storage, with always the possibility of asking and having exceptions granted. But I think we do need to worry now that we have this possibility about the idea that, you know, in 
the context of trying to, you know, create a family, you create a number of embryos, you've then decided that you're finished your family making project, perhaps you have two or three children, but you still have two or three embryos in storage. And at this point, you don't want to use them in order to make more children for yourself. And then you have to make a decision about what the options would be for disposition. Do you want to give them to another couple? Do you want them to be used for research? Do you want them to be used for education and training? Or do you want them to be discarded? And right now, there's no requirement that you pick one of those options. You could, in fact, leave them in a storage tank forever. Um, and you know, you might pass away, and then you would presumably have to make you know some kind of arrangements in your will as to what would happen with this material. Uh, are there any stats or even anecdotal uh, notes in terms of what most people are doing in those cases? There's actually some empirical research, but it's extremely limited because number for a number of reasons. Uh, in some cases, people are not sure. Uh, if they have really finished their reproductive project, and so they actually keep holding on to them thinking, well, you never know, maybe we'll change our mind. But what we do know is that most people, despite the fact that they themselves have benefited from assisted reproduction, they find it very difficult to give those embryos away to another couple. So they want to be helpful, and some people then choose to be helpful by donating those embryos to research in the idea that it might improve IVF for other couples. But they seem to have a reluctance to the notion that there would be other children out there in the world who would be siblings to their children, that they wouldn't know each other, that would be brought up in different circumstances, etc. And so we do find that a number of people hesitate to donate them. Our guest is uh, Francois Bayless, Canada Research Chair in Bioethics and Philosophy, uh, professor at Dalhousie University, uh, talking about an Ontario court's decision, a ruling that uh, awarded an ex-wife a disputed frozen embryo. Now, we do know that neither the husband nor the wife uh, was a, or had a biological connection to the disputed embryo. What happens when there is a genetic connection? Well, when there is a genetic connection, some courts in some countries have chosen to see that particular genetic link as creating, if you will, a preference for one or other partner. Uh, in my case, I don't think that's actually the way that I would recommend one think about the issue. I think that there are other criteria that one could bring to bear. For example, one could be thinking about what would be in the best interest of any child that might be born. In this context, however, I think one of the things that's worth thinking about is what's the motivation in insisting that these embryos be used possibly to initiate a pregnancy and have a child? And what we've heard is that the uh, female partner would like to have a genetically related sibling for the child she already has. And I think this is deeply problematic that society would endorse that kind of thinking. If you have a sibling, you have a sibling, and it doesn't matter if there's a genetic link. And to insist on that is, in fact, to call into question many valuable families that we already have. That might be families created through adoption. That might be families created through blended families when people have divorced and other families recombine. And so I think it's really spurious to be thinking that, oh, you know, if you're going to have a sibling, I have to be able to show that you're genetically related to your sibling. And, and I think we really need to start thinking about the emphasis that we put on genetics in terms of, you know, what should be really social and emotional attachments. These are people you care for. That's what building a family is about. It's about taking on responsibilities to care for a child. It's not about saying, well, you're not a legitimate member of this family if you can't pass a certain kind of genetic qualification.
There's no uh, update in terms of whether the uh, the male in this case is deciding to go to the Ontario Appeal Court, and, and who knows whether this might go to the Supreme Court, but this is a case like this, uh, should it be decided by a, a Supreme Court body because it has so many ramifications? Well, I actually think the law should just be applied, and my interpretation of the law is that it's very clear that in a case like this, which is a case where neither of them have a genetic link to the child, that in order for them to donate that embryo for a purpose, such as reproduction, in this case, the donation would be to the woman for her to reproduce, both parties have to be in agreement. They're not in agreement, and therefore, I think the law says that what has been decided in this case shouldn't have been allowed. Um, So I think that, you know, we should respect our laws. If people disagree with the law, then you start by changing the law. Um, I don't think you start by making decisions that are inconsistent with the law. It's a fascinating story, and I know it has uh, very uh, many wrinkles to it. Thanks for ironing them out today, Francois. Oh, thank you for having me. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Long weekend coming up. Here we go. The, um, I guess if you don't count Labor Day, although I do count Labor Day within the summer, uh, Civic Day long weekend is the long, last long weekend of the summer, but again, I know Labor Day is the official start of the, the, the spring kind of scene, but it's still during the summer. Apart from that, the long weekend's coming up. Many of us will have, you know, different plans for this weekend. Some are going to the cottage. Some will be staying home and just kind of relaxing, vegging out. Some will be uh, doing things with family and friends in different parts of the city or the province or who knows, the world. Might be the start of a global trip for you. If it is, good luck with that. But many people here in this country will be enjoying the great outdoors in a different regard. They'll be going camping. And I've uh, prefaced this topic throughout the show in regards to two things. Glamping, that's G-L, glamping, and Yearding, two things that I know I could have gone to Google and and searched them out to find out what they are, but I like to be surprised in some cases. And today I just thought uh, I want to surprise myself with some of the answers that I'm going to hear from our next guest. I know what RVing is. I know what an RV is. I definitely know what staycations are. I've been doing those <laughs> over the last number of years. My last real vacation, like going somewhere, and you know, doesn't include the cottage or anything like that. I mean, traveling overseas was way back in 2006. That's a long time ago. So if you're planning to go camping, you'll want to stay tuned, especially if you're going to do so this long weekend. Uh, Because our next guest is going to give us a little bit of insight into some of the different things that you can do. And if you are camping, what what you should be bringing along for the ride, if you will. Nicole Bell is her name. She's from YouTube and Google Canada and joins us now on The Scott Thompson Show. Nicole, how are you? I'm great, thanks, Rick. How are you? I'm okay. So, as I said, many Ontarians, many Canadians, going to be checking out their camping gear, making sure they have all that kind of fun stuff and and the necessities to bring along with them. Uh, It's going to be a busy weekend for for campers in this country. Maybe we'll start off with the the camping scene. A lot of people in my demographic, we're talking, you know, the the, the 34-plus, the 40-plus crowd, still like to go out camping. Is that the case for uh, the older generation and the younger generation as well? Is camping still fun for that demo? 
It absolutely is. And, you know, what's really fascinating is every year um, at this time of year, right before this August Civic Holiday Long Weekend, we see the biggest spike uh, throughout the entire year of searches for camping on Google. Uh, so this is, you know, I think probably lends us to thinking that this is the weekend of the year when people are thinking about uh, racing out to their local campground or national park and pitching a tent. Uh, and from the look of the top questions that we see um, surfacing this year on Google, I suspect that there's a lot of newbies to the camping scene uh, <laughs> who've maybe not done this before. Because uh, we see um, questions around what should I bring camping? What food do I bring camping? What kind of things should I do uh, when I go camping? What is backcountry camping? And my favorite, how to make coffee while camping. Do you have answers to any of those questions? I do. I mean, some of them I have answers to. So, you know, around what should I bring camping? What we're really seeing here is Canadians looking for lists of gear, um, you know, like making sure that they're not going to forget something important. Um, and there are tons of great places where you can go online to find um, lists of the top gear. The what food to bring camping, really interestingly, um, uh, one of the breakout trends we see around that is a searching for vegan camping food. Hmm. Um, and the other big trend we see in food are people searching for um, how to make s'mores. This is also the time of year when we see the biggest search interest around s'mores. And the overlap between those is kind of interesting to me because I discovered through looking into some of this data that uh, traditional s'mores are not actually vegan. So all you vegans out there, you have to go buy special vegan marshmallows if you want to have your vegan camping food and make s'mores wow. on the same weekend. Yeah. I, I would have never guessed that. Yeah, there's actual gelatin in marshmallows, which makes them uh, not suitable for vegans. Interesting. Uh, mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm, I'm very curious now. What is backcountry camping? Is this like really, you know, uh, out, in, out in the wilderness? So it, it's not as scary as I thought. When I first looked at this, <laughs> I thought, you know, there's there's like a scary movie out right now that's called Backcountry that's about people and bears and stuff. Um, but no, it's not that scary. This just means camping where you are only able to access your campsite by foot or by paddling. So, yeah. um, you know, I don't think there's probably a lot of Canadians have gone out and done this kind of camping before where you're either hiking into your campsite or you're taking a canoe or a kayak to get to your campsite as opposed to campsite that you can literally drive your car or your RV up to. Um, so, you know, that would be kind of car camping versus backcountry is anything that you have to use human power only to get to your campsite. Interesting. So how do you make coffee while camping? Isn't there like a, an instance kind of process you can buy or some machine that's portable and uh, maybe solar powered? All of those things. That's the kind of fascinating thing about coffee. It seems that coffee while camping can be as easy or as complicated as you are willing to make it. So, yes, it can be as simple as there are all kinds of great new products available, especially in, like, um, very lightweight, smaller, single-serve um, uh, things for instant coffee. So all you have to do is boil water, add your instant coffee, stir, and you're ready to go in the morning. Um, I also learned about something called cowboy coffee, which is um, boiling water over your fire and then... Um, adding uh, coffee grounds that are tied up in a clean bandana to soak into the boiling water, and that will make your coffee for you. (laughs) Um, Or for true aficionados, you know, you can get uh, incredibly complicated um, specialized equipment that will make you, you know, the finest, finest coffee uh, while you are on your uh, camping trip. However, I would recommend looking at some of those uh, pieces of equipment. They're a bit heavier, they're a bit bulkier, that it's probably better suited to that car camping or RV camping rather than backcountry camping where you're going to have to, you know, drag in that metal pot with you uh, to make your coffee. My plan was to call George Clooney and he can bring the Nespresso. We'd be okay. 
Perfect brand. The only trouble you have with that is just getting somewhere to plug it in. But depending on <laughs> whether you're camping or glamping, that might make the difference for you. <laughs> um, number four on, on the top camping questions, things to do when camping. Do, do people not have an imagination anymore? It's fascinating. You know, I think this, these are the kinds of questions that lead me to think that, you know, what we're seeing here are a lot of new campers, um, people who are, uh, you know, maybe not... Uh, you know, haven't been doing this for decades and know exactly what they like to do when they go camping. Uh, perhaps new Canadians who have never um, uh, tried camping before. Uh, and, you know, probably also stressed out parents trying to figure out how am I going to keep kids uh, active in the wilderness uh, without their iPad for the week. Um, so, you know, we're looking at all kinds of great stuff around, you know, um, different games you can play while you're camping, um, you know, um, how to introduce your kids to hiking, fishing, all those kinds of things. So there's tons of great suggestions out there online from practiced tried and true campers giving you great recommendations on fun stuff to do while you're while you're enjoying um, Canada's wilderness. That makes sense. Nicole Bell is our guest from YouTube and Google Canada on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. Rick, in for Scott today. All right, the two most important questions I got to ask here is what in the world is glamping and what the heck is yurting? I'm so glad you asked. So glamping is a uh, short form of glamour camping or glamorous camping. Um, and yurting, uh, very, they kind of come from a very similar place. Both of them were popularized by music festivals sort of over the last decade. So this idea that instead of kind of pitching a tent in a muddy field at a music festival, there's got to be a more glamorous way. And now that has um, transported itself over into regular camping. And so you can find all kinds of um, you know, specialized camping areas where you can actually pay to go into a tent that might be kind of like a taller canvas tent that actually has a bed inside and, and lamps and might even have, you know, wash basins and things like that. Um, so they, they tend to be sort of a higher end camping experience where, you know, gone are the days when you're kind of bending over in the vinyl tent, struggling to get the fly closed. Um, you know, this is a, a much more elevated experience for people who want a real floor and a real bed, but also still want to, you know, not quite have a full cottage experience. And then a yurt is a very similar um, kind of a structure. Um, again, the, both were popularized by uh, music festivals. Um, and a yurt is just a circular uh, version of that rather than kind of a, a more square rectangular shape. Um, and what we're actually seeing now is that even some of the national parks and provincial parks are offering these as options to guests who want to reserve them. So quite a number of Ontario's provincial parks, you can actually go and, uh, and book a yurt instead of just booking a, a campsite. And you get, uh, you know, bunk beds and, um, uh, you know, a little bit more of an, of an elevated experience. And a great way to introduce people to, uh, to camping if, you know, if you've never pitched your own tent before and that seems intimidating, this is a bit of a, of a transitional way to get into it. It's kind of easing your way into the camping yeah, scene. slowly easing your way into it yeah. so that it's not quite so intimidating as you know, sleeping on the ground in your sleeping bag on your first time out. Uh, found it fascinating that uh, the uh, Canada's top trending camping searches by province when it came to provinces or territories uh, searching most frequently for camping, Ontario is not in the top five, which I find kind of funny. Maybe everybody's heading to the cottage. It's really interesting. You know, the, Quebec it tops that list. And, uh, you know, the search of, um, interest we saw in Quebec nearly doubles the search interest of the other provinces. Uh, so, you know, Quebec, they are, I don't know whether anyone's going to be there this weekend. They're all going to be out camping. It's going to be amazing. Uh, but you're right. Ontario doesn't crack into that list of top five. Um, uh, Quebec, Yukon, New Brunswick, British Columbia, and Alberta. Um, those are also some of the places that have some of our biggest and most easily accessible national parks. I don't know if there's any overlap with those things. 
but yeah, very interesting to see that perhaps it is the Canadians are more we're more dedicated to the cottage experience perhaps than uh, than traditional camping. Yeah, I can certainly see BC for sure. Alberta is in there. Quebec, yes, definitely. New Brunswick caught my eye because I didn't think uh, that was a camping hub. Uh, same with the Yukon. I know it's beautiful in the summer and, and in the winter too, but for camping sense uh, in the summer, I, I didn't think it'd be as high as number two, but good for them. Yeah, really interesting. And, you know, we see, um, particularly in the uh, on the East Coast, um, there's a huge amount of interest in ocean camping, um, and they're also very interested in um, uh, the Bay of Fundy National Park, which is, um, you know, beautiful, located right at the Bay of Fundy, you know, wonderful heritage site um, that I think a lot of Canadians would love to go and have a chance to see. So, yeah, there's uh, we don't necessarily think about the East Coast as much, you know, Alberta, British Columbia, some of those really spectacular parks come to mind, I think, for a lot of Canadians, uh, Algonquin, uh, but certainly the East Coast um, has incredible uh, parks to uh, to definitely compete with the best of what we see in the rest of Canada. Uh, Alberta and B.C. Uh, dominate the list of Canada's top search national parks in 2018, Banff being number one, which is no surprise. Absolutely not surprising. And, you know, the other thing I find interesting, uh, you know, this is data that looks at the entire year. Um, and a lot of these um, parks that appear on the list are also ones where you can ski um, or where there's, you know, as much to do in the winter as there is in the summer. So that might also, uh, you know, uh, give some reason as to why um, they rank amongst the most searched over the last 12 months. Um, but yes, we see Banff in that top position, uh, Jasper, uh, and then Pacific Rim National Park, which is also in British Columbia. And that comprises part of the West Coast Trail and then the fourth uh, most popular is Glacier National Park in uh, British Columbia. So lots of uh, interest in those West Coast parks, some of the most stunning scenery in Canada. Um, and also, interestingly, you know, other reasons why they might appear in our Google search data um, have been uh, closely located to some of the wildfires that have been going on. So you may see people searching those places to determine how safe they are as well. One of those ones, uh, I used to live there, and it's the only park that I've uh, visited on the uh, top search national parks in 2018 is Wood Buffalo. Phenomenal scenery, and if you ever get a chance to be up there, it's it's just amazing. Absolutely stunning. A UNESCO World Heritage Site, you know, combining the top of Alberta and the Northwest Territories. Uh, I agree. It's it's an absolutely stunning location that uh, if Canadians have a chance to go and check out, they absolutely should. We'll wrap up with uh, trending camping searches by province in Ontario. It's portaging. Yeah, so portaging. And, you portaging, know, I'm not, yes. <laughs> I'm not surprised. Um, just given how many lakes we have in Ontario, uh, for a lot of people, portaging is, you know, if you are going to do backcountry camping and not car camping or, or in an RV, uh, you know, portage, portages form um, a huge part of that experience for a lot of Canadians who are getting out to camp. It's always my least favorite part about camping, having to carry a canoe over my head. <laughs> um, but you feel, you know, you have like such a sense of accomplishment when you've completed one. And you also get to look like Mr. Canoehead for, for a little while while you're doing it. Oh, so. Mr. I remember so. Mr. Canoehead. Uh, <laughs> last traditional experience. Yeah. Lastly, New Brunswick again. What in the world is ocean camping? So ocean camping, this one is, you know, exactly as it sounds like. This is um, camping campgrounds that are uh, that are abutting to the ocean where you can uh, frolic in the surf uh, instead of, you know, jumping in a lake um, and get a chance to sort of enjoy uh, the beautiful vistas over the over the Atlantic Ocean um, while you are in your tent. So that's a, become a much more popular way of camping on the East Coast. Interesting stuff. Nicole Bell, thanks for the time today and uh, best of luck and, and have plenty of fun this uh, long weekend. Thanks so much, you too. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML.